Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg, joined as always by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. And Tim, you know, we focused a lot on this team's offensive shortcomings this year. But, you know, to their credit, they have been very adept at hitting into double plays. <laughs> the uh, last couple of nights against the Giants, uh, they've, they've, it's been their peak of, of the season in hitting into double plays. They hit into five the other night, uh, including multiple ones that were, you know, not ground ball double plays, but uh, bad reads on the bases. That's, uh, you know, they've done that a bit more lately, which I, I think you get the sense like that is what happens when a team is pressing to score runs. You're trying to get better reads off uh, off the bat, uh, you, you know, and you get bad reads off the bat. Sometimes when you do that, you try to be a little bit too aggressive, uh, thinking that a ball is going to drop in when it's not. So they've had uh, two instances I can remember because what it was J.D. Davis in L.A. and it was Javi Baez the other night that like they were rounding third when the ball was caught and there was no chance of getting back. It was just kind of like, oh, right, yeah, they can throw me out now. Uh, so uh, I think we've seen some evidence of the Mets' prolonged struggles uh, offensively uh, kind of exacerbating themselves uh, when the team uh, tries to, to do a little too much. Yeah, uh, they are only fifth in the league. You would think it would be a little bit better in, in uh, times grounded into double play this year, but consider that the, the top three teams, the Nationals, Reds, and Padres, are all teams that are in the upper echelon of the National League and on base percentage, which the Mets are definitely not. They are punching above their weight when it comes to grounding into double plays. But if we look at this seriously, uh, and, and I, again, like last week when we spoke, I was optimistic and I realize there's a lot of season left, and you know you made the point, and and everyone makes the point that Mets fans know better than everyone how well, how quickly a, a season can turn around, and how quickly a seven and a half game lead could evaporate. But I think this team is cooked. I don't, I don't think there's a way they can climb back into it. Yeah, it's it's very hard to see how they could get themselves back into it. Uh, that. Um you know, they've got this, these next 15 games against the Marlins and Nationals. Sorry, Nationals and Marlins. Uh, in that order, they play Washington, Miami, Washington, Miami. Uh, and they have to do something very good against those, you know, I would say probably like 12 and 3 uh, at minimum. And then, you know, the Braves schedule is more difficult uh, now. At least the next week, they've got, um, I think they, they host the Giants and then they go to L.A. Uh, they've also got to go to San Francisco still this season, although that might be at a time of the year when, you know, depending on the NL West race, the Giants might not be pushing quite as hard at that point. Uh, so, you know, there's there's a little bit of hope schedule-wise from the Mets, but, you know, after this 15-game stretch, their schedule gets significantly more difficult again um, with, with series against uh, the Yankees and the Cardinals and the Brewers and the Red Sox and, and the Braves. I, I think after this 15-game stretch, they've only got one more series against a team under 500, and that's Miami the last week of the season. So, uh, it, you know, they, they've got to go like 12 and three, hope the Braves stumble and, and play 500 ball over the next two weeks, in which case, okay, then you're back within two or three games uh, and you've got a shot, but uh, it, they just got to play better than we've seen. And, and there's a lot of like, you know, what is the problem? And I, th I think it really comes like you look at Tuesday's game, I'm sorry, Wednesday's game uh, and Pete Alonso came up twice with the bases loaded and there were four fastballs down the middle that he fouled off. And I don't want to put this on Alonzo. He's been their best hitter in the second half of the season. He's the only guy who supplied runs for them on Thursday. Uh, 
but like that is symptomatic that that is a, a symbol of what's gone wrong for this team is they've had opportunities it's not like pitchers haven't thrown them mistakes over the course uh, of these of this season of the the entire season of offensive woes for them uh, and they're just they're fouling them off they're missing them they're taking them uh, they're just not putting those mistakes into play with authority the way uh, we're used to uh, with with these guys in their track record you look at like I was looking at the batting averages of the starting lineups this this past series from San Francisco and New York batting averages aren't that different you know no one on the Giants is is hitting 330 or anything like that the real difference is in the slugging percentages you know the Mets have just not slugged at all in August really they had three extra base hits in, in an inning last night on uh, Thursday night and that was the most that they they'd had in a long time that uh, was more than they'd had in the series up to that point uh and you know a guy like Dominic Smith has uh something like 250 more plate appearances this year than last year and he still has fewer extra base hits uh it's just a, a team that hasn't slugged the way you thought not just in home runs but in doubles as well uh and that makes them string together hits uh to score runs uh and it's hard to do that uh and they're not you know they're not a good enough contact team to do that either it uh, it has been enormously frustrating, and it was you know what seemed like what was what was a frustrating team even when they were sitting in first place. Uh, if you go back through our archives, I think we'll we'll show that for sure. But uh, now that they have fallen apart, it has just become uh, and and you made the call a couple weeks ago, just sort of a, a lifeless team. Even and and Javi Baez has brought a little bit of a spark, but not nearly a, a big enough spark. Uh, Francisco Lindor in his first couple games back struck struggling a new uh, Alonzo, I would say, you know, and, and you're, you're right that those at bats are, are uh, a good symbol of what has gone wrong for the Mets. He's the, he's the one guy I think you feel pretty good about and, and Brendan Nimmo too, moving forward. But uh, a couple of big pieces, um, well, a very big piece of, of the Mets future and a potential piece of the Mets, Mets future making their way back to the field. Uh, you had a story about, about Jacob deGrom r- ramping it back up to, to try to get back on the field this season. And Noah Syndergaard made a rehab, rehab outing. He is not throwing breaking balls this year, but uh, he is back throwing into the mid-90s. Not quite the, the Noah Syndergaard triple digits, but you know, uh, adrenaline certainly will make up some of that difference, and he is definitely still working his way back. What do the Mets hope to see, and what, what can they get um, out of DeGrom and Syndergaard in terms of you know knowledge for moving forward? Yeah, it wasn't all bad news for the team this week so far. The, the DeGrom news was good. The Syndergaard news was, you know, it's good that he's pitching. It's weird that he's, he's doing it without breaking balls. Uh, with DeGrom, you know, he's on the, the 60-day IL through at least September 13th. Uh, he's just playing catch now. Uh, the general rule, I think, in, in baseball is like the, the amount of time that you were shut down as a pitcher, that's how long it takes you to ramp back up. DeGrom was shut down for essentially four weeks. So if you think he, he takes four weeks to get ramped back up, that leaves him with maybe a start or two at the end of the year. Uh, the, you know, The Mets could accelerate that process. They did with someone like Carlos Carrasco in the middle of the season. Uh, they have said that, you know, Regardless of their competitive context, uh, they think it's valuable to see DeGrom pitch in Major League games this season. Uh, I think I would be surprised if this team is, is 10 games out with three weeks left, with two and a half weeks left, and they decide, you know, Jacob DeGrom can pitch three, four innings. We're going to 
do that in the major in a major league game rather than in a minor league game. You know, he's not fully stretched out, but we're going to see him in a major league game. Uh, I actually maybe I shouldn't say I'd be surprised. Wait. I think I think that would be weird if they did that, but they might. You know, right. given what the, I thought it was weird that they they did that with Carrasco earlier in the year. I, I argued against it. Um, so I, I think they want to see where Degrom is at. They, you know, in their minds, in the Mets' minds, he is a he is a healthy pitcher at this point. That the the inflammation in his elbow has cleared up. Uh, they're treating this like you know, uh, like why shouldn't he pitch if he is healthy? Uh, even though he's had all of the the issues earlier this year, I think there's there's a, a point to that. You know, this isn't like the NBA where you just shut a guy down because oh, like you know, we're out of it. We're gonna we're gonna try to get draft <laughs> good draft position. Like there's no need for him to play the the last month of the season. Uh, you don't see that in baseball to the same extent. Uh, and, you know, you don't see, like, teams that are out. Like, the Orioles don't just shut down John Means because they're out of it uh, to save his arm. Um, so, you know, they want to see where DeGrom is at. They want to get a sense of, of what he can be, uh, what his offseason plan is, and what he can be going into next year. And, you know, want to see if, if he looks really good, then you can start thinking about extending him again because he's got uh, the opt-out after tw- 2022. Uh so that, that's the plan with DeGrom. I'll let you comment on that before I dive into Cindercart. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit directtv.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Yeah, I mean, I think that it seems hard to expect. Like, the Met fan part of me is like, don't, what are you doing? What are you, like, why would you try to rush in any way, try to get this guy back? Like, set any sort of timetable for a guy who is, you know, so good and will be, if healthy, such an important part of the team's success uh, next year and possibly the year after that. Again, depending on how these contracts, things maybe, maybe, uh, maybe further down the line than that. Uh, and so, you know, that instinct when you're when you're sort of paranoid and, and waiting for everything that could go wrong to go wrong, you say, well, 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 why? You know. But then I think the rational part of me says, you're right. Yeah, like that's not generally how baseball teams do it. You would like to know how he's like at some point he's going to need to pitch and you'd rather assess it sooner than later, because if he does get back to a mound, if whether it's in a real game or a simulated game and it goes awry and, you know, he has to shut it down all over again, then that drastically changes uh, the the face of your offseason, I think. And and we are sort of getting to the point of the year when the Mets need to to start assessing, you know, how they're going to do things in the offseason. If you uh, bring DeGrom back, you know, you you think you follow all the correct protocols and you, you think you, uh, you know, you've given them enough time to ramp up and something pops or, you know, and knock on wood, you know, I don't want this to happen. But uh, if it looks like, OK, like this is a bigger issue than we thought, then I don't think you can go about like trying to build a contender for 2022. I just don't think that's a, a reasonable approach. We've seen what has happened to the Mets, who were a contending team until basically until DeGrom went out, right? And and you can see the way uh, the ripple effects that losing him have had on, on the club. So I, I want to like 
on on spec say, oh, I hate this plan because the Mets made it. And yet, like, I can't really in good faith say, oh, this is a bad idea. It's kind of like the opposite of uh, I, I think it was a Jeff Sullivan tweet uh, that was like, or maybe it might have been Sam Miller. Uh, just like love this trade for the Rays. Who'd they give up? Who'd they get? Right. Uh, and and this is hate this move by the Mets. What are they doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think and, and it is a justified impulse for a Mets fan base to feel that way about how this team has handled injuries over the past, I don't know, two decades. Um, I, I, but, you know, your point about the offseason is right. And, and it's, it's if something were to happen to DeGrom, like this also gives you an idea of what his timeline is. You don't want to go into a situation where, you know, he has his normal offseason. He throws normally like, uh, you know, you go, his he did not experience this inflammation playing catch. Like, he, he was fine doing that. It was only when he kind of went harder off of a mound that he felt it. Uh, and if he's going to feel something in there again, you kind of prefer it be now than at the start of spring training next yeah, year. absolutely. Uh, not just for your offseason plans, but for his availability. Uh, you know, if, if something happens now, then you can kind of dive deeper into, well, what, what is it? Because we didn't get a, a really good answer on that this first time. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of a, an animating impulse here for the Mets is... is if there is something wrong, we'd rather have it. We'd rather know about it a lot sooner uh, than spring training of 2022. And then with with Syndergaard, uh, I do wonder how different the approach would be because he so he's throwing fastball, two seam, four seam fastballs, uh, as well as changeups. Not throwing his slider. He said he was instructed by uh, his, his two doctors, Doctor David Alchek and Doctor Neil Elatrash, guys who who work with a, a ton of pitchers across the sport, uh, to not throw his slider. They think that was the reason he had his setback uh, earlier in the summer when he was shut down for an additional couple months. Uh, and, and Noah has extended that, uh, that mandate to his curveball because he says the curveball kind of puts a similar amount of force on the, the surgically reconstructed elbow, so he doesn't quite feel comfortable with that yet. So, you know, even you know, that's a, a limited repertoire for him to come back with, even if he were coming back mid-season. Uh, you can imagine the Mets with that repertoire thinking that that maybe he should just be a reliever rather than a starter, uh, you know, a, a two and a half pitch pitcher, basically, rather than a, a four pitch pitcher. Uh, and uh, I wonder how different the approach would be if he were under team control beyond this season, if he would really be coming back in this state. Uh, but I do think because he's a free agent, there is a little bit more uh, of an urgency on his end to appear in major league baseball games again mm-hmm. before he hits free agency. Uh, I do think this uh, leads to there being a lot of questions you know, the slider was his best pitch uh, when he first came up and in uh, 2016, when he had his best season, uh, his inconsistency with the slider in 2019 was the main reason he struggled for stretches uh, of that summer. Uh, you know, he did, there were, you know, a lot of that month of June in 2019, he didn't really throw the slider. He threw it like three or four times a game for a month uh, and didn't pitch great. Uh, and he had his curveball then, too. Uh, so uh, it just seems like, you know, this guy going into free agency is going to get a handful of maybe two inning relief appearances to show that, like, the, the basics are there. But uh, it, it does make it seem to me that it is likelier that... Uh, he accepts like a qualifying offer from the Mets because, uh, you know, for him to, to be a pitcher you're, you're willing to give uh, a significant deal to, you, you probably want to feel that he can throw his slider, his best secondary pitch, or his second best secondary pitch in his curveball uh, anytime soon. 
Yeah, I think that uh, it's a good point. I think you, so. You think they will offer him a, a qualifying offer? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are fans who are like, well, well, you know, you can get him for less than the you know eighteen and a half, nineteen million that a qualifying offer is going to be. But I think you look at the recent history of like pitchers who have just had Tommy John surgery get the two year deal mm-hmm. worth like fifteen or sixteen million. Like Garrett Richards had Tommy John surgery in July of twenty eighteen, and that off season, you know, before he's really I don't even know if he was throwing by the time he signed with the Padres. He signed a two-year, $15.5 million deal. So that's essentially $15.5 million for that second season, mm-hmm. uh, which would be his first time back from Tommy John. Uh, and, you know, I, I think Noah Syndergaard is uh, a better pitcher than Garrett Richards. He's further along in his recovery at this point. Uh, so I would think if, if a team like San Diego were willing to give Richards $15.5 million for his, Tommy, his comeback year, uh, you would expect a, another team to be willing to give uh, 18 or 19 to Cindergard. To so uh, if you're the Mets, you you offer him that. If he accepts it, uh, that helps your rotation. Uh, you know, the Mets, again, they should be a team that's in a position to risk guys accepting the qualifying offer, uh, even if they don't really want them. Uh, I, I think they would want Cindergard to some extent. Uh, so, I, I you know, they shouldn't be in the situation that Oakland or Tampa Bay often find themselves in of like turning down team options or not giving out qualifying offers to guys who then sign for similar amounts of money like Marcus Semien or Liam Hendricks uh, or uh, Charlie Morton. So uh, the, the match, this is a way like if he turn if he accepts it, that's fine. Uh, if he turns it down, that's fine too. You can talk to him about something. You can still engage him uh, if you want to resign him. And you get the draft pick if he signs elsewhere. So I think it's really a win-win for them. Yeah, I agree, and and I'm glad to hear you say it. I think that it's it's a worthwhile risk for a team that is uh, purportedly going to be a big spender moving forward. Um, and I find there's something like very, and again, this sort of goes against what I know to be true about baseball, which is that you'd rather have a you'd rather have a good starter than even like an excellent reliever. Um, and Syndergaard at his best was a very good starter. Um, there is something tantalizing about the idea of that guy coming out of the bullpen. Um, I do think he'll accept, I, 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 my like hunch says he would accept a qualifying offer. Uh, it seems like he enjoys New York city. Like he, I think he, uh, he seems like he's out and about a little bit and it's, it's a great environment for, if you're looking for that pillow year, right? Like we talked about it with Michael Conforto, like perhaps he'd want to go to a better offensive environment and, and uh, get himself a bigger contract. But I think with, with Syndergaard, like, uh, well then, yeah, like of course you'd want to be pitching half your games in city field. If you're pitching for your next contract. Um, And I kind of, there's like something that uh, that's like very much appealing about like the, the notion of, the bullpen door opening and six foot six, long blonde hair, giant, uh, fireballing Noah Syndergaard emerging for like your eighth or your ninth. Um, and again, like they, they don't have enough of a starting rotation to start thinking about this for 2022, but you can definitely um, envision like a sort of with Syndergaard in there. You could think about this Mets bullpen with the pieces they already have, right? With with Diaz and with uh, with with Trevor May will be back next year, right? Um, right, because he was two years. Yes. Um, and and with Seth Lugo, like that that could be a really really good bullpen um, if you add a you know a speed metal there in in the eighth inning um, or or the ninth inning. Um, again, like I don't know that that's the right move. 
I just think that would be kind of cool. You just want to see like the the video board montage uh-huh. they would build for no I'm thinking in a uh, situation. You know, uh, immigrant song like the Led Zeppelin song, like and it's got like all Viking inspired lyrics. Like I think that that would be how I would want that to go. What would be your bullpen entrance song, and would it be different from your at bat song? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, because I think your at bat song, you 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 have like ten seconds, right? And you want it to be instantly identifiable as yours, so that in a pinch hitting scenario, uh, everybody like they play the music, and everybody's like, ah, here comes Ted. And so like uh, the Mike Piazza with like the Jimi Hendrix riff, I remember. When he came back to City Field with the Padres, at the I was at the first game, and like before his first at bat, it was like wow, down, out, wow, 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 and everybody knows it's Mike Piazza. Like that's cool. I remember even like Daniel Murphy a couple times, like pinch hitting. Like you knew the Dropkick Murphy song was his jam. You knew he was coming up. Um, that's and again, it was like a, a very identifiable from the start. Uh, whereas you have a little more time for a build up with your with your closer song. Um, you definitely want it to be inspiring from the get-go but i think you you don't need like that like that strong hook necessarily so my my bullpen music i'm i'm and i've been pretty consistent with this would be keep their heads ringing by by dr dre like ding ding dong ding if you listen to that song uh it's like a throwdown and i because i would just like i would love to have like just the whole everybody up and dancing uh that would be me I think I, there are a lot of different ways I think a closer could play it. I'm sort of like a fun, like I'm, I'm into like a good 90s West Coast party. And so that would be my approach. I think there's a strong case to be made um, if you were like Cindergard, And again, not better than the Immigrant Song, but uh, for c- complete silence. Like I think that if you could just <laughs> say like my closer music is complete silence. And what we need is everybody in the crowd to shut up. And so, like, just the stadium, instead of, like, everybody going wild, the stadium goes, like, hushed, dead quiet, and the only thing anybody can hear is the sound of your 102-mile-an-hour fastball on the glove. I think that would be cool, too. Like, I think um, a a string quartet would be another, uh, like, a live string quartet for, like, a very deranged sort of like Hannibal Lecter approach I think you could is stuff you could play with as a closer whereas as a hitter you got again you got like that 10 seconds and like it doesn't even matter what the song is you just need it to be a a, a hook that everybody can write realize everybody can recognize yeah the the Red Sox before their uh play home playoff games used to play this like long highlight reel video of like the Red Sox history uh, including a lot of like negative elements of their history before 2004. Uh, and it, they set it to like the theme song from The Exorcist, uh, which was just like always creepy. Uh, and it was something they had done like before they won the World Series. That was a, a, a video that they played to that song. Uh, and so uh, that always struck me as something that would be like super weird to use as a, a reliever coming out of the bullpen to get the do, 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 do. Like yeah, that, I like that. That uh, music to it. Although a lot of eighties horror movies, like because like the Halloween theme that's like dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Um, and like the there's like songs from the Omen that are like religious terror themed <laughs> that I think would be fun. Yeah, I mean my my bullpen music I've always thought should be like uh, Joker and the Thief by Wolf Mother, which uh, I just like how that builds. And and you know I'm not like a a metal guy, so I need to go with like you know a re- a, a reasonable rock song that's not too hard. Yeah, I don't want to get too amped, you know. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's a case to be made for getting too amped. <laughs> Uh, that was like, like b- before I played like basketball games as a kid, uh, you know, everyone, everyone like listens to the hardcore music or, or rap or something to get them going. And I was like, I'm going to listen to some alternative rock. I'm going to put on some like what? Vertical Horizon or Bare Naked Ladies. Oh, man. Uh, that is a very specific moment in time. <laughs> uh, Vertical Horizon went to my college uh, a few years before I did. And when I was in a band in college, they were like, that was like the aspirational story of the Georgetown music scene it was like, you too may someday be Vertical Horizon. Oh, see, I thought you meant that they like played a concert at your college. No, no, no. Like, they yeah, were. I don't think that's the only college Vertical Horizon has played that's, at, Ted. No, they did. I, I think in the entire four years I was there, I don't believe Vertical Horizon ever showed up. I'm not certain I would have gone or found out if they did. Um, but, uh, you know, we did we did get Wyclef uh, for one of the worst concerts I've ever seen in my entire life. But that's a different story. We have a question and a good one, and it's about next year, and it's something when I saw it on Twitter from from this is from Martin Kester on Twitter, uh, it it shook me awake because I totally forgot about this. He says, can you ask Tim Britton if anyone has a plan for Robinson Cano and the two years and forty eight million dollars left on his deal? Is he a part time DH? Would Steve Cohen play it off, pay it off and release him? Where does this rank this winter with Stroman, Conforto, Centerfield and everything else? Adios and peace. Yeah, so I, I think uh I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that the Mets know at this point. It would be a lot easier for them to make an informed decision on this if they knew what the status of the DH was mm-hmm. going to be. Uh, but they don't. Um, it is, uh, it's $48 million, but the Mets are getting $7.5 million of that paid down by the Mariners. So for them, it's only $40.5 million. Uh, right. Big difference. Um, so I think, you know, the, the two options are, are pretty much what, what Martin laid out. It's, it's either keep him uh, and have him as uh, a part-time player. I don't think you're handing him back his everyday second base job next year. Uh, and the DH help, if you know you have the, the designated hitter, uh, that's a pretty nice left-handed bat. You know, we can, we can debate what you can reasonably expect out of Robinson Cano because he was uh, not very good in 2019 and he was very good in 2020. You can kind of it's easy to forget that he had a 141 OPS plus last season. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly forgot that. Uh, you know, he tested positive for, for performance enhancing drugs for the second time. That suggests that maybe he would not be as good uh, when he comes back. Uh, so I don't think you're giving him his everyday second base job. You can contemplate giving him a part time job uh, where he helps you out and adds depth to your team. Uh, you know, not unlike what like Albert Pujols is doing for the Dodgers currently. Uh, the other option is just to eat the money and, and let him go. Like. Uh, there are some fans who will say, like, should we? Can we trade him? Can we uh, like attach a prospect to him? No, don't do that. Yeah, no. You are you are a big market team. You should be you should be looking like if any other team has Robinson Cano and wants to attach a good prospect to him, you should be the team acquiring that guy. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, may, maybe there's a team that you pay down thirty million of the forty and a half that wants him or something like that. I, I don't know that there's a team out there that fits that uh, mold. Uh, so I, I think th- those are really the two options. It's it's keep him and play him part time, uh, or just cut cut bait. I don't know how the rest of how they feel about his personality in the clubhouse. Uh, I've heard kind of uh, both sides of it. You know, mm-hmm. there are uh, people going back to his time with the Yankees who thought he was a, not a great influence in the clubhouse. I've also talked to several different players who have played with him, who who have called him like the most important mentor in their baseball careers. Guys like Cattell Marte and and Gene Segura, who he played with in Seattle. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, there's that part of it, whether you want him in the clubhouse or not. 
and how he would, as a veteran player, accept a, a limited role uh, and a not everyday role, a guy who wants to get to 3,000 hits uh, and would like to be in the Hall of Fame, but probably has hurt that case. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't, there's no obvious thing here i think it's it's just those those two decisions and it's harder because they're not going to know like if they knew they had a dh uh and they said okay you know our our regular lineup that we run out there is going to have pete alonzo as our regular dh but you know and with dom smith playing first base uh and you know we're going to mix it up a little bit sometimes dom will be in left we'll give jd davis some dh time we'll play pete at first uh and cano can be part of that mix that kind of makes sense for them uh, and also, if you have a DH, you don't. You can be more creative with your bench. Like you can carry guys who do less uh, because you're not pinch hitting as much. Uh, you're not double switching as much. You're not. You're not using your bench uh, on as regular basis, so it's easier to carry. Like he's our left-handed pinch hitter. That's all he's going to do. Uh, but uh, I don't think they're going to know about a DH until close to spring training. You know. Uh, uh, you know. In the situation with Cano, they don't have to make a decision before then. Like they can hold on to him the whole time. They have team control over him. Uh, I don't think it should impact their offseason plans, really, uh, whether he's on the team or not. You're paying him. Like, he's part of the payroll regardless. You've got right. to think about that. Uh, but so they, they can probably afford to wait on that. But, it, you know, it would be nicer to know in November if you're operating with the designated hitter or not. I find, like, so much about Cano and his situation fascinating. I Like, I, I people don't want to hear that word, I guess, for, for it because there's so much still outrage over uh every time a guy takes steroids in baseball but with cano it's so weird and baffling or i i don't know to me that like he never got he never once got caught using steroids until after he already had a massive contract uh and after he was already like more or less a shoe-in for the hall of fame if he had just retired uh at that point instead of like you know letting himself get get caught I think he would have made the Hall of Fame, like, and and now you know he almost certainly won't. Um, and so, like, it just it it's a weird thing to think of it, um, you know, because people tend to associate. They say like these guys are are cheating the the game by trying. They're doing this to. Uh, everybody always says like you're doing this to make more money. This is a greedy move. Um, and clearly, with Cano, it's it's something different than that. And and to get yourself caught twice, then you you know, like I I think back to like Henry Mejia, where it's like. Can can you not can you not stop like are, are we talking about like I don't know it's a it's a huge and heavy topic for conversation but it's like is this something closer to addiction than cheating at some point and and I don't know the answer to that but uh, in terms of his his position on the roster is uh, another point I want to make and something I want to make before because I think this exposes how uh, flawed major league system of uh, major league baseball system of of punishing steroids cheaters are. Uh, is rather um, so if you're a member of the front Mets front office right now you should be like I, I hate to say this you should be actively rooting for Robinson Cano to get on steroids or stay on steroids right because it means that not only will you benefit from the juiced up Robinson Cano for as long as he stays on the field but that as soon as he gets caught you're off the hook for that for that bad contract and so like I think that's a major like this, and this has been something I've been thinking about and saying since since A Rod's year uh, in in steroid suspension because 
that was a uh, at that point an albatross contract that the Yankees were able to get out from under thanks to his uh, his suspension. Uh, it shouldn't be that way. Like you, you need to make it so that the team is penalized more when its players uh, get caught uh, taking steroids. Not that the team, because I think that if if you put some of the accountability on the team, it might change a little bit. Um, and right now, you can't you can't logically say like, oh, the Mets should want. Robinson Gano, like clean as a whistle and doing his best when right there is the possibility of a guy who is going to be playing above what his like normal physical biological level should be. And then also um, who is risking taking himself off the Mets books when they when they shouldn't be wanting to pay him. So uh, it's a it's, you know, in this case. It's the Mets. It, it happens whenever an, an aging player gets gets suspended for for using steroids. But uh, it's a it's a weird thing. And I feel like there's a solution uh, involving like you got to come up with a, a way to penalize teams. So maybe you say, OK, that contract money goes to revenue sharing or it goes to, uh, you know, steroids education for for youth programs, whatever you want to say. Like, I feel like there's a you need to keep teams on the hook for that money. Yeah, I actually, when you started that and you said you have a problem with the way they, they do it, I was I was hoping it was going to be that because that's my problem with it, that that uh, the Mets benefited from the fact that uh, they acquired and, and pay money to a player who uh, had previously uh, tested positive. Uh, and that like the best case, you know, when this happened in early November of last year, like that was a that was a good outcome for the Mets that they lost this player for uh, the 2021 season. Uh, because they didn't have to pay him, uh, and and that didn't have to count against their payroll. Uh, if Robinson Cano were on the the Mets now, or, or were playing and and were not suspended, uh, they'd be over the competitive balance tax threshold. They probably would have gone about their offseason in a different fashion, uh, and so they have benefited from uh, from that in a way that I don't think any team should benefit from a player on po- that possibly multiple uh, times, right? For, like for, if because yeah. if you're saying uh, his 2020 was, and I don't know the extent to which steroids helped his 2020, but if you're saying that's what ha- helped him. Then you're saying the Mets, the Mets, they they win twice from from Cano using steroids. Yeah, they, they get the benefit of the improved performance uh, and the benefit of of, you know, of him being suspended. Then and they don't have to pay him. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that uh, baseball still has a, a little bit of a ways to go in in terms of making that. You know, we, we've seen it with um, some players who have had domestic violence suspensions and the way that teams like commodify that mm-hmm. uh, the, the Yankees being the classic example with the Chapman and like trading for him when he had a depressed market because he didn't know about the suspension uh, and then dealing him away when that market had recovered uh, and then signing him back. Like it, it's just uh, an icky feeling all around when, when a team does that uh, and uh, baseball, it would be nice if there were a way uh, as it'd be nice if, if Major League Baseball could close loopholes like that. It'd also be nice if uh, you didn't have teams that that hunted for like that kind of specific loophole. Uh, for sure, right? It doesn't. It doesn't make. It doesn't make most fans feel good, and it doesn't make the sport look good. And it's just not like a. I don't know. It's it's not pleasant. Uh, it was, and you know that's the least of the issues, right? Like it's 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 worst. Obviously, it's worst for the victims, but it's it it just sort of like ripple effects the uh the distaste of it all to everyone yeah that <laughs> uh, i don't, <laughs> nothing I don't, more know, what to add. I don't know what else yeah. to say uh yeah like you know, like the major league baseball's got some issues on its hands i don't know if you knew about that but let's talk about moving the mound back now 
Uh, I do not want to talk about that. Mets are starting their their fateful 15-game stretch. You won't be around to discuss most of it. Uh, yeah, so I am going on a, on a vacation for the next couple of weeks. It is actually uh, our honeymoon. Uh, we, we didn't initially plan for it to be during the season, but uh, a couple of things uh, kind of pushed it in this direction. What could have uh, happened so in the past year and a half that would have, that would have sort of changed your plans? Uh, right, yeah. I, I don't know what that was. Um, but so it's the longest vacation I've ever taken in the middle of a baseball season. Uh, and I was when you know we, we decided to go forward with, with this trip at this time. Uh, I was kind of thinking like, oh, you know, the Mets will, will they'll be in first uh, and, uh, you know, it might be a tight race, but I'll be back for like the most important part of the pennant race uh, in the NL East. And, you know, they're playing the teams that are that are probably going to. Well, I, I knew Miami would be out of it. Washington at the time we were planning it was was a part of the, the conversation in the NL East, uh, you know, the playing, you know. I'll be able to cover the most important part of the season. And now it just looks like, you know, unless they really do run off a, a really nice stretch here, uh, the, the way they did in like 2019 when they hit a, an easier part of their schedule, uh, then I'm, I'm, it's just kind of playing out the string at this point. And it's it's remarkable to me that uh, in the span of three and a half weeks, we've gone from a team comfortably in first place uh, to a team in this spot. And you bailing on it all together but i will remind you also like just be careful what you wish for because uh when i went on my honeymoon in 2009 the mets were not going to be in the in the postseason that year and i didn't have to worry about missing that but i did uh when returning into the american airspace and american tv coverage the first thing i saw on the in-flight television was Omar Minaya calling out Adam Rubin for reporting that tony vernazard had taken his shirt off and challenged a bunch of double a players to fights so yeah, I mean, you never know. There, there is no safe time as a Mets beat reporter to take any any vacation. There, you never know what's going to happen while you're gone. So, uh, hopefully, you know, we'll have uh, Rustin Dodd is going to fill in for me on the writing side. I, I don't know what what the podcast plan is. You probably know that better than I do. Uh, but uh, hopefully, uh, he does not have to do anything too too crazy. Yes, we have a, a thorough plan, and I definitely know what it is. Tim, I I hope you have a good time. Uh, Me too. I I really look forward to it being a good time. (laughs) Peace out. Adios.